Thank you for tuning in. What if there was an ownership structure designed specifically to create more capitalists and in so doing, create more opportunities for more people to increase their wealth through performance and incentives and with no guarantees? Such a structure does exist. It's an ESOP, an employee stock ownership plan, and something that most of us have heard about but really don't understand even those of us actively involved with ownership succession planning. Our guest today on the podcast is Alex Moss, founder and president of the Praxis Consulting Group. Alex is an expert in and an advocate for ESOPs, but not a seller. So he's the perfect guest for us to learn all about ESOPs, their history, their applicability, their mechanics, and their ability to drive greater business results and create more opportunities for greater individual and collective wealth, but only when the fit is right. We're always better served when we better understand all of our options. So without any further delay, let's get into ownership structures, good governance, and the best practices for ESOPs and beyond. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Alex Moss, president of Praxis Consulting Group, and we'll be talking about ESOPs. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Great. Well, um, I mean, there's so much I want to cover today, um, and we have a limited amount of time. So let's just start by getting to know you, if we can. Can you share a little bit about you, your career, and um, what connection you have to ESOPs and the work you do in the AEC industry? Sure. I'll, I'll work a little bit backwards from the ESOPs. I've been uh, a founder and currently president of my firm, Praxis Consulting Group, out of Philadelphia. Uh, and I've been here my entire professional career since the late 1980s. Um, I got into employee ownership in business school. And before that, I was in economic development and community organizing and was really interested in sharing uh, economic opportunity more broadly across the spectrum. And what drew me to employee ownership was the idea that we can share the opportunity to create wealth and share that wealth with people without taking it from other people. This idea of redistributive justice is fine. We can argue about the pros and cons of it, but what we get in the employee ownership world is the ability to create more and to share opportunity rather than taking from some to give to others. And I think that opportunity sharing really speaks to me. Um, in the AEC world, we, you know, our practice is not particularly focused on AEC firms, although we've worked with many, many of them over the years and spoken at ACEC meetings and that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's a very attractive, we'll get into the details, the concept of ESOPs and employee ownership is very attractive in this space because you have a lot of firms that have started uh, by founders or by teams of people who kind of like what they have and they don't want that to get subsumed or absorbed into somebody else's firm. They'd like it to continue on its own. 
And, and this is a way to do that in a way that's good for the sellers, good for the employees, good for the clients. It's kind of a win-win-win situation and the government backs it up with tax advantages. So um, it's a lovely solution when the fit is right. And there are, of course, we'll talk about it you know, times when the fit isn't quite as good. Well, well, excellent. Well, let's let's dive in kind of big picture. What is an ESOP? Um, where did they come from? And what problem were they looking to solve? Or on the flip side, like uh, what opportunity were they looking to create? The people that started ESOPs had one problem in mind that they were trying to solve. And people who've come to ESOPs tend to come for that reason and, and a little bit more. The original founder was a guy named Luke Kelso, who was an economist who had this idea that one of the primary problems with capitalism is that it doesn't create enough capitalists. We're not bringing enough people into ownership of the business enterprises where they work. And he, he's not the only one that's ever said that, but he was a, uh, an investment banker and uh, uh, um, an, an economist. And he, he came up with this idea that you should have ownership sharing in the place where you work. That idea was adopted by a, a senator named Russell Long. If you, if you remember Huey Long from Louisiana, you know Franklin Roosevelt's opponent who didn't like anything Roosevelt did, including social security. And he didn't like the idea of federally funded retirement plans per se, but he didn't have another idea. He just had a son named Russell and Russell Long grows up and goes off to the Senate. And he's the chair of the finance committee and he, and he meets Luke Helzo, the economist that had this ESOP idea, you know, bingo, we're doing pension reform. Why don't we put this idea of sharing ownership and sharing wealth into the pension system and create a special kind of pension that instead of investing company money in outside funds, invests company money in company funds on behalf of the employees. So that's where it came from way back in 1974. You know, we have a long history of sharing ownership in the United States. Even before there was a United States, we were doing profit sharing in the shipping fleets. And there's some really interesting books that we can put in the, in the, uh, the podcast resources if people are interested in that history. Um, so it's a very, very American concept that we want to share, but we don't want to share guarantees. We want to share opportunities. And that's what Kelso had this idea uh, Russell Long got it worked into the pension law. And what's happened since over the years is that what they intended would happen has happened, which is that business owners would imagine uh, selling their firm, would consider selling to outsiders, and might be attracted to the idea that they could sell to insiders, meaning their own people, the people that have helped them build the business. And over the years, Congress has juiced that up by providing a range of tax incentives to encourage business owners to consider selling their shares to their workforce through this specialized kind of retirement trust called an ESOP. Okay. And, that, and the ESOP is Employee Stock Ownership Plan. It is. And it's commonly misunderstood as an employee stock option plan or an employee stock purchase plan. And they're all related. They're ways in which people can acquire an equity ownership in their company. The ESOP itself is a little bit more like a 401k plan, except that the employees don't generally, they can, but they generally don't contribute their own money. The money comes from company contributions. And instead of being used to buy stocks and bonds, other investments in the public markets, 
that money is used to purchase the shares from the people who founded or built or second or third generation owners, people who are selling the company. So employee stock ownership plan is an ESOP, a kind of cousin of a 401k that's designed specifically to invest in buying the shares from the people who until now owned and ran the company. All right. I, I, I want to get into some of the mechanics of that and some of the operations and how it's similar or different than, than sort of other types of ownership equity structures. Mm-hmm. But before I do that, can we maybe on a, on a high level, just talk about some of the advantages and disadvantages to, to the ESOP equity structure and maybe from three different perspectives. So we kind of advantages and disadvantages, but you know, one from the perspective of the current owner or, or the one who might sell to the ESOP. Mm-hmm. Sure. And the second from, you know, the next generation leaders, you know, who would be taking over. And then the third, maybe from the employees in general, if we can kind of do the advantages for those people groups, and then the, maybe the disadvantages. Yeah, and I might say also fourth would be the customer. Um, and at True. the end of the day, we'd sure like to keep the customer happy. And if this helps, it's going to be a good thing. And if it gets in the way, it doesn't matter what else we say. If the customer doesn't like it, uh, you know, we're kind of done. From the the founder or the selling shareholder perspective, you know what we always say is that that every business is for sale. It's just a question of when. The only way a company's not for sale is if it fails. But a successful business is always going to be for sale at some point in the future. The question's when, and to whom, and what degree of control do you want to have over that process? Though ESOPs are very attractive to business owners who want to keep ownership of the company within their extended employee family. They want to keep the ownership available for the people who've worked with them over the years and who will work with them in the future. Um, Because of the way the, the, the deals are structured and the tax incentives are set up, it's a really good long term transition strategy. ESOPs are not so good for the business owner that wants to get paid 100% cash, disappear tomorrow and travel around the world. And the reason for that is that it's a leveraged buyout. It's an internal leveraged buyout. And as you know from other M&A work, you can't leverage up a company 100% with outside financing very easily. It's a burden on the company. Nobody really wins when you do that. So typically, these deals are bank financed and the sellers are holding some of the notes themselves in order to get to 100%. There are other ways of doing it that we can get into. Point being, from the seller's perspective, the first thing they get is continuity and legacy. The second thing that they get is the government added way back in 1984, the ability in a C corporation for the seller to defer paying capital gains if they sell at least 30% of the value of their company to an ESOP. And that's if you're, you know, for those that are curious, it's called Section 1042 Capital Gains Deferral. We don't have to wade into the nuances of the tax code, but you can defer recognizing capital gains if you sell at least 30% of your, the value of your company to an ESOP. So that's, that's a financial advantage to the selling shareholder. What I would say is if, if, if you're not interested in that and you're not interested in a kind of long-term continuity, if your business is better served by being strategically absorbed into somebody else's business, or and or if you want all the cash right up front and you want to walk away, an ESOP's just going to be less attractive to you. 
because you're, you're, you might be able to squeeze a few more bucks out of another outside seller, particularly a strategic buyer who sees some synergy between your business and theirs. Um, and the ESOP isn't a synergy buyer, it's a, a financial buyer. So I think sometimes we get into this debate about whether ESOPs are a good financial deal or not. If they weren't really close, nobody would do it. There's thousands of ESOPs and, and, and the people that have sold to them are pretty hard-nosed business people. They sell to the ESOP because they can get really, really good value. It may or may not be the top dollar, but it's close enough that these other factors like continuity and loyalty to their employee base, those things tend to take over for people that care about those things. But nobody's taking an enormous haircut on this because it just nobody would do it if, that's, if, if that were at stake. So that's we can come back, or do you want to ask me questions? No, I think I think that's out? good from a from a seller current owner perspective. Yeah, is that enough? Or yeah, well, what about like the next generation? So if there were people who you know their principals and they thought maybe they yeah. could become owners and and now you know presented with an ESOP option, yeah. um, the main owner or ownership team is thinking ESOP. But what are some of the advantages? For, you know, from your perspective, if I was next generation leader, or maybe some of the disadvantages? The, the, the obvious first order, both advantage and disadvantage, and then they're flip sides of the same coin, is that you're not buying stock directly. So in a lot of A&E firms, it's routinely the case that the next generation of owners buys in and they're purchasing shares either from the corporation or ultimately from the, from the founders who are selling and leaving. And that group of people has to go and borrow that money against their home or take it out of their prior savings, or maybe they had some individual wealth already, or the company has to fund it through extra bonuses that those people then forego in order to purchase shares. So the good news is you can cherry pick the people that you want to own the shares. And the bad news is they got to pay for them. One way or another, they got to pay for them. And they're paying for them with after-tax dollars, whether it's compensation dollars or bonus, or in some form or fashion, it's all going to be uh, dollars that, that, that um, are taxable dollars at some point. In the ESOP, everybody's in. You can't cherry pick who's in and who's out. And so the bad news from the next gen is it's not going to just be your firm. It's going to be everybody's firm. The good news is you don't have to go and borrow money to pay for it. There are a lot of ESOPs that are partial ESOPs, particularly in the A&E space, where people have said, well, we want our key people to do exactly what we were doing before, which is borrow or forego bonuses to buy some of the shares but we also want to have a steadier market for a larger number of the shares, and we're going to do an ESOP for that. So it's not at all uncommon to have the incoming generation purchase some and the ESOP to purchase some, to have a partial ESOP. One of the things that, that I want to flag here is that a primary advantage of having an ESOP generally is that if the ESOP does own 100% and if the corporation becomes an S-corp, none of the corporate earnings are taxable for federal income tax purposes. And that applies in, in many, but not all states as well. So in effect, we're, getting, we're becoming a tax-free entity if we become 100% ESOP. If you are only partial ESOP 
and because you want your next gen to directly purchase shares, you don't get all of that benefit. So there's this kind of tension between uh, most of our clients are not motivated solely by, by tax management. They're motivated by what's good for their business. All else equal, I'd rather pay less taxes than more, but I want to do what's right for my business. And so the ownership vehicle that they choose is going to depend on who they think makes sense to own the business. And then let's get the best tax treatment on that that we can. What, what about financial performance? I mean, whether they be a partial ESOP or a full ESOP, I mean, is there performance data out there aggregated in some location that shows how, how ESOPs perform compared to their peers that might have a different equity structure? Is, is there data like that? Yeah, there's quite a lot of it, actually. The, the data that I would love to have that I don't is something like the eBRI data for 401ks that compares financial performance across these huge data sets. We don't have that yet because most ESOPs are privately held and the degree of disclosure that they have to make is only to the firms administering ESOP who aren't disclosing that data publicly. So on the one hand, nobody's required. You have to sort of sift through all the tax. It's a pain. The people who've started to do that research over a number of years now have found that ESOP companies have higher productivity growth they have higher employee retention. They have higher retirement benefits, not just in the ESOP, but they also are more likely to have and to fund 401k plans. They have higher return on equity. They have marginally higher sales growth, but a little bit of sales growth goes a long way when you compound it. Um, and generally, uh, better return on equity, lower levels of layoffs in times of economic uncertainty. And some of these numbers are really dramatic in the ESOP space. So the data says very clearly that ESOP companies are outperforming in pure business economic terms. So then you'd say, well, why doesn't everybody do it? Everybody doesn't do it because it's not the right solution for everybody. Some owners just, you know, they're not interested in either the delay or holding any paper in the debt structure. You know, there, there are things that are a, a pain in the neck, but it's a slow and highly regulated process. And that turns some people off and they don't like it. But mm -hmm. ESOP companies at face value perform better. And we, we know that from all kinds of academic research, government research, private industry research. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole ton of it. The best place to go look is at Rutgers University. There, there's an endowed chair of employee ownership. They've started a, a center on research into employee ownership and profit sharing. And they don't do all the research at Rutgers, but they're the best place to go to learn about who's doing academic research on employee ownership around the country, in fact, around the world. Maybe we can use that as an opportunity to talk a little bit about the mechanics and maybe like a hypothetical example of the mechanics of, of creating an ESOP. And maybe in this scenario, it, it's a, you know, a single owner of a hundred person firm um, and they just want to establish an ESOP and they have five years left to work. I, I mean, in that sort of example, what, what might the mechanics look like to, to create this ESOP? They can either wait and watch the value grow now and, and do the ESOP later they could sell a few shares to an ESOP now and gradually grow it. The, the two most common things that they would do would be, first of all, study it for a while and see if it really makes sense for you. So there's a whole feasibility study process in this to make sure that the numbers work and that you know, all, all the, everything ties out. 
Uh, and of course, everybody's going to do that before they would jump in. Let's assume they've done that. What does that process look like? Um, either they're going to sell 30% or more because they're a C-Corp and they don't want to give up ownership control immediately. They want to hang on to a majority of the shares, but they do, they are attracted to that capital gains deferral or they're going to leverage up as much of the company as they can to get to 100% ESOP, become an S-corporation, stop paying taxes, use that to help fund the debt to pay for all of this. And, um, and, and, and if they do that, if they do the 30% deal, you can borrow that money from the bank usually. So it's usually senior debt funded. And usually that amount of cash can go to the owners. It just depends on the circumstances and debt capacity and your line of credit and what else is going on in your business. But it's not uncommon to have a bank finance 30% ESOP transaction. Can you do less than that? Yes. There's a little bit of a misnomer that you have to do at least 30, you don't. But you won't get the capital gains deferral if you don't sell at least 30. If you want to become tax income tax free, you got to go to 100%. And those are very, very common deals. And what they usually look like, I'm doing one right now in an A&E firm where 25% of the financing is coming from a senior lender and 75% of the financing is coming from the selling shareholders. The senior lender will be paid over five years, selling shareholders over the next seven. So they have to be patient. And the, the seller who says, well, if I got to wait 12 years to get paid, why wouldn't I just hang on to the shares and ride the value up? And the answer is, because sooner or later, you're going to have to sell your company and you're going to have to sell it to somebody. And if you want to get that process started, today's as good a time as any. And what happens in the structure of the ESOP deals is because the owners are giving up some of that upside by selling today in order to get to 100%, in order to be tax-free, they'll take back warrants. So they'll get some of the financial value of the growth of the shares if and only if there's growth. So there's a lot of, um, I can you know, get nerdly with you on the M&A structure of the deals if it's helpful to do that in the podcast. Um, the, the, the structures take a lot of different forms, but most commonly it's either a bank finance 30% deal or a bank plus seller financed 100% ESOP often but not always with seller warrants. Is that-, okay. that, 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 that No, that, that, that's exactly what I was hoping just to get the, the basic mechanics down mm -hmm. of that. So I appreciate that. I mean, thinking about, you know, you had sent me a, a list um, or a, a link to a list of the top 100 ESOPs. And I was yeah. amazed with how, I mean, I should have known, but I didn't realize how many engineering architecture firms actually had at least a 50% ESOP yeah. um, and well-known names. What, it, but they have thousands of, some of them have thousands of employees. What, is there a sweet spot for ESOPs in the industry? I mean, is it, if you have thousands of employees, that's the way to do it, or it just so happens because we looked at the top 100 list that they happen to be, I mean, is, where do you, what is the typical size of an ESOP? Is there such a thing, or if there is such a thing? Yeah, there's a big, there's a big standard deviation, of course, or at least a range. Um, the, the, the most common size of an ESOP is under 100 employees. The most ESOP employees are in bigger firms because there are more employees in a smaller number of firms. 
So we, we've worked with ESOPs as small as, I think the smallest one I'm working with now is 27 employees. That's really small. And the reason that you don't see ESOPs in much smaller firms is that there are a lot of uh, legal costs in setting up the ESOP and administering it and having a trustee and having an appraisal and you can manage some of these things, but you're still gonna pay money to do the ESOP deal. So relative to doing nothing, an ESOP is very expensive. Relative to selling your company, it's kind of in the ballpark of what you'd pay to do anything else with a little bit of a little bit of cost that's unique to being an ESOP. But that that aspect of it is not dramatic. The main event is you're selling your company and that costs money. Doing that whole process in a 20-person company or a 10-person company is a little cumbersome. And you tend to see other more direct equity sharing structures in those smaller firms. It's very common to see ESOPs in firms with 100 to six or seven or 800 employees. We have a number that are 1,500, 2,000. As you get over three, four, 5,000, the number of ESOPs in, in, in companies at that scale goes down. Um, and it's not because you can't do an ESOP, it's just they tend to be ESOP for a while and then the strategic value of being acquired by somebody else gets to be pretty compelling and somebody comes along and buys them. Um, and I know we'll get to that question later. So maybe I'll save my comments on yeah. that until we get there. Well, well I mean, let, let's get there now. So how, so I, I convert, I'm an owner, 150 person firm. I convert, I'm an ESOP. Uh, the next generation takes over. Could, and no, let me just make the fine point that if you were a C-Corp when you did that, you can choose to defer your capital gain if you play by a bunch of complicated rules. Then if you convert to an S-Corp and you're 100% ESOP owned, your company stops paying federal income taxes, off we go. That's not the only way to do it, but it's an attractive way to do it. Right. So, if, but, but if I'm an ESOP and I'm humming along five yep. years, 10 years, yep. and the, for whatever reason, someone says, you know, I want to convert back um, yep. to a different equity, equity structure, or if someone becomes an M&A target, what, what does it look like to, I guess, first convert back? Is it, is it possible? What might that look like? And then secondly, if you were just attractive in the marketplace, do you, and somebody gives you an offer, do you have to sell? Do you not sell? Like, what, what does that look like? Because I mean, I don't want to be absorbed. We're an ESOP. Someone's throwing money at us, you know, in, in whatever way. How does that look like? So there's kind of two questions of that. What, how do you convert yeah. back? And then if you're a target of M&A or you're interested in M&A, what does that look like as an ESOP? So first principles in ESOPs, because the vehicle that we're using to buy the shares is a U.S.-based retirement plan under the U.S. law that good old Russell Long set up back in 1974. That law is called ERISA. Anybody who's ever had a 401k plan or a pension of other kinds is familiar with ERISA. And the first principle of ERISA is thou shalt protect participants in your plan. So the, the, the Luke Kelso idea was share ownership with people in the workplace. Russell Long took that and turned it into a kind of retirement plan. So we have ownership sharing through a retirement plan. And the reason that matters is you can always shut down a retirement plan. You just have to do it in the best interest of the participants. So in the case of an ESOP, it means everybody gets vested. The price has to be advantageous. There's an ESOP trustee who 
acts on behalf of the ESOP participants and the ESOP trustee has to make sure that we're not doing something disadvantageous to the ESOP participants. So the governance, without getting into all the nuances of the governance details, benefit plans are created by the board. The board can terminate them. And the ESOP trustee will make sure that if you're gonna terminate this plan, that we're doing this in the best interest of plan participants. When would that happen? That would happen in two circumstances. One of them is very sad and one of them is very happy. The sad one is the company's going down the toilet and every once in a while that happens. That's not a function of being an ESOP. You know, capitalism happens, companies fail. It does happen in ESOP companies every once in a while, although rarely, but it does happen. And in those instances, the board and the trustee have to be talking to each other about at what point in time do we put this thing to bed and pay people out the value that we can pay them. So I don't want to dwell on that because it doesn't happen very much, but, but it is true that it can happen. Much, much more common is ESOPs perform like crazy. The market notices, they come along, knock on your door. You say, well, we're an ESOP. We're not really for sale. And they say, yeah, you are. And if, so if there's an appraised value, which one of the, 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 the issues in an ESOP is the selling price to the ESOP and the price of the shares within the ESOP is determined by a third-party appraiser who works for the ESOP trustee. If an outsider comes along and offers you something that's about appraised market value or slightly above, most ESOP boards are going to say, go pound sand. You know, we're going to get there really fast in the next year or two. And I'm on a couple of boards and nobody comes along and offers us more money than God you know, they, they try to get in and get a good deal. And, and what really happens is you want to buy my company for less than it's worth. Thank you for trying. The answer is no. Having said that, if you look at a company like a, a good Reese, two good recent examples would be LifeTouch, the photography company. It's probably their names on the back of your kids' yearbooks from high school or college. A big photography company. If you were LifeTouch 15 years ago, you probably should have bought Snapchat when they were little, or not Snapchat, but uh, Shutterfly. And you know, fast forward 10 years, Shutterfly bought LifeTouch. They bought the ESOP company, and they bought them for a whole bundle of money. And they bought them because the world changed, and LifeTouch's business model didn't make as much sense as an independent company anymore. All the employees get paid out; they get a lot of cash. Whether they're happy or not depends on whether they wanted to remain ESOP or whether they wanted cash now. Most employees would love a bundle of cash right now, thank you very much. Um, and so these outside purchases, New Belgium Brewing is another one, very, very well-known, very highly regarded ESOP. For strategic reasons, they get to the point where they feel like they can't grow, they can't serve the interest of their participants who are their beneficial shareholders unless they sell to an outsider and that's what they did. So there are these circumstances where the outside offer is enough higher and strategically compelling that the best thing to do for the ESOP participants is to sell the company. And we see this happen a lot. I, I don't, that's not my favorite circumstance to be involved in because I'm an ESOP guy and I like ESOPs like King Arthur Flower that stick around for a long, long time, you know, where that's their aspiration 
you know, this is the oldest flower company in the United States. They've been around since before there was a United States, since give or take, since 1796 is King Arthur Flower. And their goal is to remain 100% employee-owned forever. Will they get there? I don't know. Forever is a long time. Uh, but And th that's different from New Belgium, right? And New Belgium would have said, we want to stay employee-owned as long as it makes sense for our participants and our business will be ESOP-owned. When somebody comes along and tells us there's a really good strategic reason to be owned by an outsider, we're going to have to take a look at that. Most of the ESOPs that I know and that I work with would tell you they'd prefer to remain ESOP owned for a long time, but nobody's got their eyes closed. You can't. You're in it. You're, you're not just the private plaything of a couple of people. And so if you go back to your question of what changes in an ESOP, we now have a shareholder who's making sure that we are serving the best interest of the participants in the plan. Generally speaking, that's going to be run a great company and we will create a lot of value and those participants will benefit. Once in a while, it will be better to sell the company and, and you see that happen all the time. And is, and is it, what is the fiduciary responsibility? If you got an offer twice the value of the firm, I mean, yeah. do you have to take it at some point? Does the board have to consider that or just no, we want to, I mean, is there, without getting into too many details, is there a well, fiduciary well, the responsibility? Theoretical, the theoretical answer is if the number's high enough, of course, of course we got to jump. The question is how big is big enough? And that's going to be your judgment call all the time. You see the, you see ESOPs, sell for various kinds of significant multiples over the current appraised value. Because if I'm on the board, which I am, and somebody comes along and offers me 1.1 times my current value, I'm going to look ahead a couple of years. I'm going to say, realistically, am I going to get there? Is it better for my participants to continue to be independently owned? Of course. And I'm going to sit on it. I'm going to say, no, thank you. Particularly knowing that what that buyer may do may in fact not be in the best interest of my participants in the long run. So really, I've got to keep my eye on the participants as, as retirement beneficiaries and make the decision through that lens of, is this the right thing for my shareholders and my participants? I want to make a technical note. When you say fiduciary duty, boards, when I'm wearing my board hat, are governed by state law fiduciary duty. I'm, I'm supposed to serve my shareholders and make sure my company is being taken care of. That's my job. ESOP companies are governed by a different kind of fiduciary duty, which is ERISA fiduciary duty. And that's what the trustee has to do. They're the one that's got to really keep an eye on the participants. And so they're going to say to the board, make sure you're keeping an eye on my participants and doing what's right for them. And the board's going to say, great, let's manage the company. Let's create a lot of wealth. Let's make sure the ESOP's doing what it's supposed to do. Under state law, I'm serving my shareholder and my shareholder is governed by federal fiduciary, ERISA fiduciary law. I know that's a little bit of kind of advanced baseball and we can get into the governance a little bit more if you're interested, but it is important to know that when you set up an ESOP, you are agreeing to do business under federal rules and you, you, you lose at least a degree of flexibility, um, even though the ESOPs that I know would say, great, bring it on. You know, this is mostly good governance stuff that we should be doing anyway. 
I, I great. Thank you for that. I, I do want to ask you some questions re, with respect to operations. But one, going back to sort of the mechanics of if an ESOP is created, I'm just kind of quickly like, who, how do you determine ownership in that? You know, if there's a hundred employees, yeah. who gets what percent? Um, yeah. And then what does vesting look like yeah. typically? Yeah. So the, those are pretty easy answers, and that you've got, you've got some flexibility within the federal rules, because there are rules on this. The general rule that most ESOPs follow for allocating the shares within the ESOP is that you get them in proportion to your compensation, W-2 comp. There are some exceptions. There are some limits. Um, you can't count comp over a couple hundred thousand dollars because it biases the ESOP towards highly comp people, and the ESOP's supposed to be a little bit Democratic's the wrong word. It's not one person, one share. You get them in proportion to your payroll. So some people like that, some people don't. Um, but it's a pretty simple answer. There are other rules, but you can't use any rule that results in the people who are at the top end of the house getting more than they would have gotten in proportion to their payroll. You can use other rules to push the benefit distribution downward, but you can't bias it upward because this is a retirement plan. It's gotta be fair to the participants. So that's how the shares are typically allocated. Usually it's very simple. Take my pay, divide it into the total pay, however many shares there are that year, that's what I get. And it usually comes out as an equivalent of your payroll that may be as low as a couple of percent of your pay in any given year, or maybe as high as 25 or more percent of your pay in any given year. And I'd say typically companies are shooting for something in the, you know, anywhere from the, you know, four, five, 6% up to eight, 10, 12%. Above that is pretty rich. And below that, um, you know, you usually see ESOPs, you know, somewhere in the mid single, mid to high single digits as a percent of pay going into the ESOP. And is that the contribution? Is that what's considered the annual contribution? If the annual not... contribution, and that's what results in shares going into the employee account. So if you think about those shares that we bought from that 100-person company that you were talking about before, we bought them with debt. The employees don't get them on day one. They get them typically over a 20- or 30-year period. And what we're going to do is divvy up those shares over that period. And each year that you're there, you get more shares. And that way we don't run out. There's a long fund of shares that are available for, for ESOP participants. And then when you get out to 20 years, people like you and me have less hair and it's not as dark and they start to retire and they get their shares bought out. And those shares go back into the ESOP. And there are a couple of mechanisms for doing that. Uh, but ultimately those shares go back to the ESOP and the new people will start to share in them. So you, you're not just solving today's problem you're solving the sustainability ownership problem for the corporation by creating a rolling ownership vehicle that people will participate in over generations, if you want, you know, until something comes along where it's smarter for somebody else to buy your company. And even and a lot of very, you know, we call ESOPs that have been around 25 years, we call them silver ESOPs, you know, and there's out of the thousands of ESOPs that are out there, um, something approaching, I think, a thousand of them. I mean, there's a lot of silver, a lot of long, long, long-term ESOPs at this point. And does that that annual contribution just kind of make yeah. sure I understand? So if I'm targeting eight percent, 
um, I want to contribute 8% of, of payroll into the ESOP to sort of be able to um, buy shares or have and buy shares on behalf of the employees sort of with, re, with respect to the compensation. Is there an additional amount of money that goes into sort of normalize who's retiring, who's not retiring to pay off? Is that a separate function of just the sort of fiduciary management of the account, or does that in a, is that in addition to a contribution every year? Yeah, so that that's actually a very complicated question because it depends on the life cycle. In the early years, you're making a contribution just to pay for the shares that you bought for originally that you hadn't fully paid for, and so that cash is going right back to the company that people are getting shares from the original set of shares. Then when people start retiring, you're making an additional contribution that's actually going out in cash into the hands of the person who's entitled to receive a payment. And because it's a retirement plan, there are different kinds of delays. So if somebody retires, they're typically paid out over the next five years. And if somebody leaves pre-retirement, it's not always the case, but it's typically the case that you don't pay them anything for the first five years, and then you pay them in the next five years, years six through 10. And that way you're not bribing somebody to quit, whereas somebody that retires is entitled to start getting their benefit next year. There are all kinds of ways that companies push those payments earlier, but you have to be careful when you do that, that you're not creating these weird incentives for people to you know, get a lot of money. And then, um, you know, then my ownership system is, is incentivizing them to quit. We don't want that. We want to incentivize you to stay. Gotcha. And then, so my last, on, on the vesting, what, what, what does yeah. vesting look like? Is there a normal yeah. time period or what? Yeah, Congress has changed its mind on this over the years to generally make it more and more and more generous. As we sit here today, you could either give people zero vesting for the first two years and then a hundred percent after year three, and that's pretty common in companies that have a lot of turnover in the early hiring years and very little turnover after that. So you're trying to say, I don't want to give you shares that you take with you um, after you leave the company if you're just going to turn around and leave. The other way to do vesting, 003, the other way is to do 0% the first year and then 20% a year through year six, 20, 40, 60, 80, 100. Um, and that way you have to stay through six years to become fully vested in your account. And I should say it's, it's a little bit different than a stock option program. Stock options, as anybody who has them knows, the vesting is tied to the stock option grant. And each time you get a new grant, you're starting at zero with your vesting. ESOP vesting is really tied to the human, not to the grant. So once I become employed, and I work a thousand hours in a year, I've earned a year of vesting service. And next year I work another thousand hours, at least I get a year of vesting service. And once I have six years of vesting service, I'm 100% vested in everything that has been and will be in my ESOP account. Again, I'm, I'm summarizing at a high level, but that's basically either a three-year vesting or a graduated six-year vesting are the, the two alternatives. You can be more generous but you can't make people wait longer to get vested. Okay, well, that 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 makes sense. Thank you for that. So in operate, if, if kind of wearing the operations hat, is there, based on your experience, is there a certain type of, of leadership um, skill set or mindset or worldview that's better for an ESOP versus mm -hmm. some other ownership 
equity structures. Yeah, now, now you're getting in our wheelhouse. I mean, this is what I, this is the conversation. Let's have a three hour conversation right. on this. Um, under ERISA, ERISA doesn't care. The word culture and ownership, you know, they, they don't really appear. ERISA is the rules for running the ESOP as a benefit plan. However, however, all of the research data tells us that those demonstrated in performance improvements that are associated with ESOPs, they're not tied to giving somebody a share of stock. They're tied to the share of stock plus the opportunity to drive performance. And so the kind of leaders that are going to be more successful in an ESOP company are people who are oriented towards engaging their workforce in performance enhancing activities. So you see a lot of continuous improvement, a lot of focus on employee engagement, and a lot of focus in developing future leaders that are oriented towards open, highly engaged, highly accountable, highly engaged performance improvement initiatives in all kinds of companies, including A&E. So companies that are very people focused are going to really be attracted to that side of the ESOP because the performance potential of employee ownership is very much tied to this sort of style of inclusive leadership. And when I say inclusive, I, I don't mean kumbaya, we're all going to have fun. We'd like to have fun, but we're all going to go perform and make customers happy. And the kind of leaders that tend to thrive in ESOPs, in inclusive ESOPs, are the kinds of leaders that are more oriented towards the sort of inclusive uh, get people involved in decision-making at the level of the job where they can make good decisions, you know, avoid micromanagement, which in the research undermines all of these performance benefits and so on. So we spend a lot of time in our ESOP companies working on developing the next generation talent pool on thinking about both technical skills, but also leadership competencies that are going to help drive inclusion and performance across the workforce. Those kinds of companies, the ones that really tend to do better. Can you have an ESOP and not be that person? Sure. Are you going to see the extra performance benefit associated with employee ownership? No, you'll still get the tax breaks. You'll still be employee owned. You'll still get the legacy, but you're not going to see the kind of dramatic performance enhancements that are associated with ESOPs if you don't behave that way. It kind of makes sense that leaders that, that do things that bring employees into creating value, if we're going to bet the farm on employees, let's go invest in them and help them run a good farm. Right. Well, I did want to ask you about some best practices, but before I get there, I mean, th these could be myths or just stories that you hear. Sure. But you hear about, you know, sometimes some ESOPs are, you know, it's, it's just too democratic. There's these blurred lines with authority and, and accountability because everyone's an owner. And so therefore you don't get performance. I, I mean, is, is that a myth? Do you see that? And, and if that happens to be the case, I guess that's what, what, what are some of those best practices or roles and functions of leadership and management that can pull us out of that? You know, I don't really experience people worried about that in the ESOP world, and certainly the ESOP data doesn't support that. So I think it's kind of a myth that comes where I hear it is from the professional advisory community of people that don't understand ESOPs and are worried that their clients will make a mistake. And they're sort of trying to steer them away from it. If I were going to get away from an ESOP, it would be for other reasons. 
So you know, just to be clear, in a formal sense, uh, a, a lot of our clients have what, what one client called me, myself, and I governance, meaning I started the company, I'm the shareholder, I put myself and maybe my spouse and maybe my CPA on the board, and we all agreed to hire me as the CEO, because if we didn't, I would have fired them, right? And so it's all the same person. The shareholder changes in an ESOP. It's no longer me. It's now an ESOP trust that's the shareholder. But the ESOP trust doesn't serve on the board. The board is now going to be composed of you and your spouse and your CPA and probably one or two outsiders, not because somebody's forcing it down your throat, but because it's a good business practice as you get ready to leave the firm to start bringing in business experts who can help your business govern itself according to good governance practices. So ESOPs are kind of dragging you into the world of good governance. The board doesn't run the company. The CEO runs the company and the board's job is to hire a good CEO. Now, when it was you, you hired yourself. But in the future, you're going to transition a little bit of that oversight accountability to a board of directors, and they're going to make sure that the CEO is delivering value. And their job is to make sure we got a good CEO, that they're capable, and that they're able to execute on a strategic plan. You know, if that sounds normal, because it is normal. We're not voting on what time to work to come to debt. You know, we're not vote. It's not the People's Republic of St. Louis. It's it's an ESOP, it's a business that is run according to, in some ways, conventional business principles. And of course, I'm going to argue more inclusive management is better, not just because it's nice, but because you get better results. But, but we're not doing collective management. We're not voting on operating hours. We're not voting on whether we like our manager. We're not voting on what products to produce. You may want employee input into the product. You may want your employee who can see that we've been goofing this up for 17 years to finally stop and say, you know, if we did it this way, we could make a lot more money. We could make the customer happier. We could improve the product. Can you do those things without any sup? Of course. But imagine you took all of those continuous improvement initiatives and now you say to that employee, oh, by the way, you're an owner. And not only are you gonna get profit sharing if this works, but in the long run, your family's going to be better off. You know, this is going to be in a good ESOP, the second most valuable thing you will ever own after your home. And for many of us, the single most valuable thing that you will ever own. And we, we can start tying that notion of ownership to daily performance improvement. It's not tied to voting. It's tied to how do we run the company? So we, what we find is that we've got to have a conversation about building a culture of shared ownership with our employees to help them make sense that, no, we're, we're not really going to ask you if you want to serve this or that customer. We're going to ask you, how can we get the product to them really, really efficiently at a good profit in a way that makes them want to come back and spend more of their money here? And how I, does well-managed ESOPs are, are brilliantly successful at that, and the data shows that. Right, and there's absolutely long-term value in that. What about year-to-year -year or quarter-to-quarter -quarter with incentive mm -hmm. compensation? How does that look a little differently? Look a little different in ESOPs, or how does sort of meaningful yeah. incentive compensation look? 
the, here's one thing that changes. You probably, if you're an owner, you're probably not going to run your airplane through the company anymore, right? It, this is not this is not the thing to do if you want the company to fund individual wealth outside of the ESOP. Once you sell the shares, you'll get the wealth from selling the shares. But that kind of incentive comp is probably not going to fly, pun intended. The kind of incentive comp that does fly is the kind of incentive comp that encourages people to do things that create more value. So it's routine in ESOP companies. In fact, it would be an error to pull back on incentives if those incentives are designed to get people to do things that drive value. I think the criticism that I would make about incentive comp, and it's we're raising the visibility and, and the, uh, the, the, the kind of accountability on incentive comp a little bit, it has to be driving value. It's not just to hand out money. So you see ESOPs all the time with short-term and mid-term incentive plans, executive comp plans, all of those things are still in play because they're good ideas, because they create value. And if they don't create value, we ought to be questioning them. So when I'm sitting on a board of directors and I'm the chair of the comp committee, I'm not saying to the CEO, why are you paying people so much? I'm saying to the CEO, why aren't you paying people more in ways that create more share value because my ESOP participants will benefit from that. And by the way, they're gonna get that incentive comp too. Right. How, when you think about kind of looking into the, the marketplace with, with the benefits internally with an ESOP as been discussed, mm -hmm. how do you think, or, or do you think um, there's a, there's a positioning in the marketplace that ESOPs have an advantage of, or how do you see that? And, and maybe anything in the AEC yeah. space with I'm an ESOP, how do, how do I position myself in the marketplace to be able yeah. to take advantage of that? I, I don't know any, uh, you know, developer, owner, I'm going to say owner as in the client of the A&E firm that is going to say, darn it, that's really cool. You're an ESOP. I'm going to hire you. The, what the client wants is service. They want on time. They want to know that their budget's going to get met. They want to know that if you're designing for them, your design is cool. So what you're selling to the market with an ESOP is and it's going to fall under the umbrella of an ESOP. Of course, we're going to say we're ESOP. So what? So what? Now we have more people who are owners who are focused on creating value for you. How do we do that better? If the client sees you, you've built something that they really value and some outsider is going to come in and potentially buy you and destroy that, the client is really worried about that. If you can say to the client, we've put an ownership structure in place that's going to protect and enhance what you like about us, then the client's going to be relieved because this is giving them what they want. It doesn't give you an excuse for crappy performance. It gives you a, a, a renewed focus on performing better. That's not a guarantee. If you go back to Russell Long and Luke Kelso, they weren't about giving people guarantees. They were about giving people opportunity. What the ESOP does is give you opportunity to continue to perform. If you fail that test, 
the ESOP will not protect you. But if you if, if it becomes an incentive for performance, which many ESOPs are very, very successful at, then what the client's getting is a better version of your former self. They're getting you on steroids because all 100 or 500 or 1,000 of your employees are in. And, you know, you're never going to get 1,000 people on board, but you, you get a significant percentage of them on board, and it's enormous. Well, one, one final question as we look to close here. Given the demographics in the industry, there's a lot of um, leadership transition succession planning happening or in on the horizon. And at the same time, there's some major consolidation forces in the industry, whether they be through public strategics or, or private equity, but sort of the investor led investment and consolidation. How do you think of ESOPs? I mean, if you were to kind of the, the sense of the, the marketplace and how you see ESOPs moving forward, do you just kind of see any trends, any more or less ESOPs moving forward? I mean, with, with all the change in the marketplace? Well, I think they're going to be more ESOPs simply because they're going to be more M&A activity because of the silver tsunami. You know, the, the founder generation at this point in history, we've got an enormous number of, of businesses that are going to change hands in the next five to 20 years organically just because of who the owners are. So there's going to be a huge amount of activity. Some of those people will be very naturally attracted to what ESOPs offer. Some will either conclude there's enough more money for me personally from a PE firm or from a strategic, from an AECOM, nothing against them. I'm just using them as an example or Jacobs or Stantec or you know, companies that are out there in the market buying up a lot of practices will continue to do that and good on them. I think there's a market discipline in that. And some people will find that they are a better fit as a division of one of those firms. They're gonna wanna land there the money will be right, the cleanliness of the deal will be right, the lack of government oversight will be right, the simplicity will fit for them and they will go and do those deals. At the same time, people who want that independent legacy, who want the government to help pay for it, and who really want the stock to end up in the hands of the people that have built this with them and feel like the client will value that level of independence and continued brand identity, um, those are the kinds of people that are going to be attracted to ESOPs. And I think we're going to see a lot more of them. Do I think every company ought to be one? No. I think my guidance would be take a, keep your eyes open and make an informed decision. Don't let somebody sell you on it if it's not a good fit. But don't let somebody scare you away if it might be a fit. You know, it'll, take a look. And then, and then you, you know, people are smart. They're not going to make dumb business decisions about their firms particularly when you only get to do this once. You know, this is a, a kind of a, life, a lifetime decision for business founders and owners. Um, and and I, you know, my, I guess my guidance would be, you ought to look at the, all the relevant options and where you land ought to be a function of what's best in your own individual context, not what some outsider tells you, including me. Mm, great. Anything else you'd like to share or add as relates to understanding and excelling with ESOPs? There's a great ESOP community. It's very sharing. It's very, um, very community oriented. The kinds of people that like ESOPs tend to like to learn from each other. So there are conferences to go to and links that we can provide and um, not, you know, not just to our firm because we, we don't sell ESOPs. We don't set them up. We advise companies 
after their ESOP or in the process of becoming, but we're not investment bankers or lawyers. Uh, and there, there are all kinds of watering holes to go to to meet other ESOP companies, including finding them at ACEC conferences or other uh, A&E industry uh, venues. Every time I speak at an ACEC event, I just say, you know, show of hands, who's, who has an ESOP and who's heard of them? And a significant number of people in the audience have an opinion one way or the other. And that, that's great because it means that there are a lot of resources for learning more and for sharing more. So I just invite anybody that's interested to learn more, come to some of these ESOP events. Um, yes, there are gonna be people tugging on your sleeve wanting to sell it to you, but more importantly, there will be people that are living it that can either help you think about why this is a great fit for you or help you see that that looked great for them, but that doesn't really fit for me and, and scare you away for the right reasons. And I, and I think informed decision-making is, is what I'm looking for, what I'm hoping people will get out of this. And, and our ESOP community is probably the best resource for that. Great. And we'll put some links to those in the show notes. One thing that just triggered when you said that, one of the a recent financial benchmarking survey I looked at of the survey participants, 300, 400 firms, what 16% identified as, as having ESOPs. Does that percentage feel right to you overall or in your experience? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bad data point because I work with ESOP companies and I don't know a lot of the ones that aren't unless they're about to become ESOPs. Mm -hmm. So let me duck on that and say, I don't, it seems reasonable. I wouldn't be surprised if the number, I'd be surprised if the number were a lot smaller. I wouldn't be surprised if it were a little higher, but I don't know. I, uh, I, I'd, I'd follow your lead on that. Yeah. Well, uh, how can listeners um, get in touch with you to learn more about you and what you do at, at Practice Consulting Group? Sure. I'd send them, you know, the usual, of course, is go to our website, which is Praxis CG, as in Praxis Consulting Group. And I'll spell that out for you. We'll put it in the notes. It's P-R-A-X-I-S-C-G, Praxis Consulting Group, P-R-A-X-I-S-C-G.com. And my email uh, similarly, Alex, A-L-E-X, at PraxisCG.com. And anybody that wants my contact information can get it through you, Pete, as well, and we'll have it in the, in, in the, in the podcast notes. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and really just helping talk us through, kind of give us an overview, uh, an understanding of ESOPs, but specifically, you know, even how we can excel with them. So I really appreciate your time today. Well, I'm, I'm obviously enthusiastic and I want firms for whom it's a good fit to be aware. And I want firms for whom it's not a good fit to make a smart decision about that because you don't want an ESOP if it's not a good fit and, and, and it will be for some and not for others. So I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and to connect with your listeners and, um, and, and hope that people will make better decisions as an outcome of this. Great. Well, thank you again and take care. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please also share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to continue to get us established. And I truly appreciate that. And it also helps to get the word out to others so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others both inside and beyond our organizations. 
Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.